0: Nothing. It is Friday the 31st of October, Halloween, but the markets are anything but spooked. A stronger-than-forecast U.S. GDP affirms the Fed's decision on halting QE. U.S. stocks rise and gold retreats on the strong GDP report, and higher bad loan rates tipped for Bank of China and the Agricultural Bank. Apple CEO Tim Cook says that he's proud to be gay. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll wind down the week by discussing the grand exit of QE with Dave Pelling, Asia editor of the Financial Times. Then Simon Powell of CLSA will join us to talk about slumping oil prices and what that means for China's big 3 producers. And for insight into the world of sport, we'll be joined by Danny Hicks of the AFP and Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management is our guest host this morning. Good morning, Richard.
1: Good morning, Renita, and I'm going to give you a Friday fact this morning. You, oh. you may have just heard that uh, Citibank has just made provision for $600 billion of uh, uh, against new fines, against new legal costs. That takes the total banking fines since 2007 up to $150 billion, which uh, uh, is enough to run a few small countries.
0: Absolutely. W- what is going on, you know, Richard? I mean, uh, that's hefty.
1: It is. Uh, and in fact, the, the, the bank with the yellow jerseys, Bank of America, with $60 billion, followed by JP Morgan with $30 billion. Uh, in Hong Kong, HSBC is just a mere $3.2 billion. So um, uh, positively righteous. <laughs>
0: Positively righteous indeed. All right, uh, let's look at uh, how stocks are doing. U.S. stocks rose, boosted by a strong reading on the quarterly economic growth and another round of upbeat earnings reports, including Visa, which accounted for nearly 140 points in the Dow Industrials. The Dow climbed 221 points to 17,195. The S&P 500 added 0.6% to close at 1,994, while the Nasdaq gained a third of a percent to 4,000. Five hundred and sixty-six gains on the S&P 500 were led by healthcare and utilities, traditionally defensive sectors. Richard, which companies would you say really impacted the markets?
1: Well, healthcare also got a boost. Uh, Bristol Myers Squibb was up eight point nine percent to fifty-eight dollars and ninety-eight cents after results from an experimental clinical trial on a lung cancer drug were encouraging. And then, of course, we had Visa shares. Uh, Visa surged over ten percent, and indeed, its uh, sister comp- uh, company, or the number two in the industry, uh, Mastercard, was up nine percent. Uh, Visa was up after it reported a nine percent gain in fourth quarter revenues to three point two billion US dollars and a seventeen percent rise in earnings per share.
0: And adding to support from earnings and economic data, market participants cited a report from the Nikkei newspaper that confirmed expectations that Japan's Government Pension Investment Fund considered a bellwether for other Japanese institutional investors will cut holdings of Japanese bonds and add to local and foreign equities. The iShares MSCI Japan ETF gained 0.8% and U.S. dollar denominated Nikkei futures uh, NKC1 gained 0.7%. Now, Richard, what about other markets?
1: Well, markets in Europe closed too early to benefit from the good U.S. economic news, but they still ended the day on a positive note. The German DAX rose 0.35% to 9,115. Uh, the French Cacarant was up 0.7% at 4,141. And the FTSE was just in the green at 6,463. Hong Kong bucked the trend yesterday, finishing down about half a percent to 23,702, but Shanghai rose about 0.8 percent to 2,391.
0: And other asset classes? I hear uh, gold dipped below the 1,200 mark.
1: Yes, it did, Renita. I mean, maybe because the dollar was a little bit stronger, gold drifted off. It's now trading at around uh, $1,200 an ounce, uh, pretty well exactly. Uh, the 10 year long bond is holding steady at a yield of 2.3 percent. Uh, but the dollar, as I said, seen a surge overnight just about touching four years' highs after the GDP figures. The greenback is currently at $1.26 to the euro, the yen is trading at one hundred nine thirty six, and the pound is at uh, $1.60 with the honky at uh, 12 to the pound. Uh, the bullish mood has actually had little impact on the oil price, but Brent crude is still languishing near its four-year lows at $86.10.
0: And companies like LinkedIn, GoPro and Expedia all beat estimates and rose in after hours trading. Citibank fell after it uh, lowered, thir- lowered uh, reported third quarter results because of legal costs. And Groupon also declined after posting Q3 losses, as did Starbucks revenues, which came just under estimates Um Starbucks, even though all of its overseas markets were up 5%, Richard, I mean, this is a real uh, question mark for me. I mean, food stocks in general have been a little bit shaky lately. We've had Kraft and Hershey, which haven't done too well either. What's the message here? Are consumer tastes changing?
1: Well, I think what's happening to the food stocks is they're suffering a little bit from comparison to, say, tech stocks. The tech stocks are in uh, a move at the moment. And if you look at the charts, I think food stocks probably the last three months have held off a bit. Starbucks was particularly interesting because although revenues disappointed, earnings were up 25%, which is not too shabby. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, we may not uh, be drinking as much coffee, but we're we're probably paying more for them. Um, The interesting thing, about Starbucks is that the, on the payment side, they've now got something like 16% of their payments in the US being made by mobile phone, which shows how the whole payment situation is changing. And one of the uh, unknown secrets, actually, is that the payment side of Starbucks is, is really very successful.
0: And has that affected uh, the earnings per share at all?
1: No, I don't think so. I think what a lot of these companies are trying to do, and Starbucks, of course, is in a pole position of this, is is trying to jump on the payments bandwagon. You know, we've seen the Visa and the MasterCard uh, earnings today, which shows the payments industry is really very healthy if they can raise their prices and, and, and hold them there. And then, of course, that relates then to Apple Pay, which is coming in too with its own payments uh, thing. So the payments sector is certainly looks as if it's on fire.
0: Mm. Now Richard just in looking at you know earnings uh, as they've been reported by these companies of the past uh, couple of weeks we've seen a number of companies many in the tech sector certainly you know some in food like Starbucks who have done well or or met estimates you know more or less but are not projecting uh, as high sales for the fourth quarter and sort of this gets analysts nervous now isn't that just an industry thing? I mean, is there reason to be nervous about Q4 sales if they've done well all along thus far?
1: Well, forward guidance is always very important. It's the thing that analysts always look for when results go out, is what are the management thinks going to happen further into the future? Um, so that's actually quite a key thing. I think what companies are trying to do is to be quite conservative. Uh, you know, analysts uh, in the market have been talking for a long time about how can earnings carry on going up? How can profits carry on going up? Because they've been going up for a long time. And US corporate profitability and profitability a- around the world is, is actually very strong. Um, and I think companies are just trying to be cautious. And it's always better to dampen expectations at this stage and come up with a surprise later on rather than the other way around. It's a tactic, is it? I think it's something that most companies, most managers would prefer to do is manage those expectations. It keeps them in the job longer.
0: So, you know, we're looking for a way to find trust in the markets and we're we're sort of turning to companies for that, you know, rather than fake things like, you know, cash injection by central banks. Uh, But from what you're saying, you know, if, if these are tactics and strategies... Can we actually trust these companies as well?
1: I think, yes, in terms of, of, of trust, you can. I mean, what's happened, of course, this week, the big thing is that uh, QE has been cut. But QE was already a busted flush anyway. The markets had pretty well known that uh, it was going to be cut anyway. Uh, and it looks as if, to a certain extent, it's done its job. You know, the US uh, economy, the figures out last night, was up uh, uh, 3.5% on the third quarter estimate. That's uh, on top of something like 4.6% in the second quarter. So in a six month run, we've had one of the best uh, growth periods in the U.S. markets for many, many years.
0: Okay. I was going to save the QE conversation for a little bit later, but you know, you've begun it. So what can I say, Richard? You've thrown me off track.
1: You'll be (laughs) fine.
0: I'll be fine. Okay. So let's talk about the grand exit of QE. I mean, there's a wide variety of opinion, uh, certainly on the Fed's actions. James Dunn is the CEO of Sandler O'Neill, and he says that uh, the rate hike... um, you know, that's, that's just happened. Uh, the rate hike, uh, is something that banks are ready for. And QE, you know, the exit of QE itself is something that the Fed took a long time to do.
1: When you look at America, we're much better shape than Europe. We're probably on a relative base, better, picked up ground at China. I think the American economy is in decent shape. And I think it took too long to do it. And I think it's also going to take too long for it to be implemented in terms of to really make a big difference to the banks. It'll help. Rising rates will help all the banks. But, I think it's really going to help more than the banks is the M&A business because the, the rates are going to go higher. That's terrific. Fine. About time. Okay, But the reality of it is in order to grow, they're not going to go high fast enough. So you're going to have to acquire assets. And, and, if, you, and if you can't grow, if you're too small, you're going to have to sell.
0: Now, Mohamed El-Aryan, the financial guru, said that uh, the Fed, rather than sending a well-telegraphed signal for going forward, is keeping its options open in an unusually fluid economic, political, and global environment. Randy Krosner, who is a former Fed Fed governor, said that the QE exit doesn't mean that the Fed has actually reached
2: its end goal. There had to be some reason why they were... um Uh, ending the program. So they had to acknowledge that there has been some considerable and substantial improvement in the labor market. But that doesn't mean that they're at their end goal. So they had to acknowledge, sure, the economy is robust enough that we think we can stop this program. But that doesn't necessarily mean that, well, we're going to raise interest rates next week because the economy is booming. It it ain't.
0: Acting uh, financial secretary Casey Chan warns that this might mean volatility in Hong Kong's markets.
1: We've already seen the exchange rate uh, market volatility, and as well as the commodity prices volatility. Now, going forward, I believe as the market uh, speculates on the direction of the interest rate increase, as well as the timing of interest rate increases, you uh, will further lead to possible volatility in the fixed income market, as well as the stock market.
0: But financial commentator Andrew Sullivan doesn't necessarily agree.
3: Hong Kong's in, in the sort of uh, a good position that our, uh, our rates are actually linked to the U.S. dollar. So the, uh, the strength in the U.S. dollar is unlikely to mean that we see outflows. But maybe some of the um, Asian countries, especially those with uh, high U.S. borrowings, uh, could come under some pressure. But the reality is, and one of the difficulties that the markets now have to cope with, is the fact that we have had excess liquidity uh, and cash being very cheaply priced for effectively the last six years as that now is going to change and the cost of money is going to be more reflective, then uh, you know asset allocation is going to change in line with interest rates.
0: Okay, so let's bring in Dave Pilling, who is the Asia editor of the FT. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. Good morning. So, Dave, do you agree with Andrew Sullivan? Uh, how will the grand ending of QE impact us here?
2: in hong kong well i think uh uh, my short answer would be no um i mean hong kong finds itself kind of the meeting of two worlds really um as we know And since 2008, the financial crisis, um, Asia emerging markets um, uh, more generally have been floating on the fact that China has been sort of roaring ahead because it's had this huge stimulus um, package um, with, you know, very high commodity prices. And you've also had easy money, low interest rates. Now, both those things are now ending. China's already been slowing for, you know, quite some time now. Commodity prices are down um, and interest rates are going to go up. So – you know, Hong Kong, which is linked to the Chinese economy very closely, as we obviously know, um, the Chinese economy is slowing, and yet interest rates are going to be adjusted for a, an economy that is now um, moving ahead. So at the very least, this creates, I think, some uncertainty. How this impacts um, markets specifically is anybody's guess, but it's certainly um, a turning point in an unusual um, tr- slightly tricky moment for Hong Kong, I would say.
1: David, what do you... Uh, I don't know if you guys at the FT have had a thought about interest rates because I'm sure you've had a lot of thoughts, but uh, if you look at logically, it's a cost. And if a cost goes up a small amount, and if the cost goes up a small amount several times, it tends not to have the impact on the market that one would think. And after all, we've had the countervailing uh, reduction of cost of oil prices. So do you think interest rates or the rise in interest rates are actually going to make a real practical difference?
2: Well, there's a number of points uh, there. This is certainly not black and white. It's also certainly um, incremental. In a sense, we've had a rehearsal for this, haven't we? Last year, we had what was called the taper uh, tantrums um, when the the end of QE was first um, um, mooted. And at that point, we did actually see quite a lot of turbulence. We saw India and Indonesia in our region come under enormous pressure. Now, what we hope is that some of those economies, I think India specifically, kind of got its act together. Um, and that now, when uh, you know that was the rehearsal now that we 're going into the real um the real deal, perhaps they're um they 're better prepared um to take that in terms of you know the current account, the level of the currency, and um, some other reforms that they may have put in place um mm. but you know as Warren buffett says um uh you know when the tide goes out, you see who 's been swimming naked, and uh the fact that A lot of these economies um, have got used to a very, very low interest rate um, environment and that now that is changing in direction. Admittedly, it's likely to be very slow, but still you could see some economies or some sectors or some bits of the economies getting caught out. You know, who knows who's been borrowing what in Vietnam to buy motorbikes um, or how... And Malaysian household debt will be affected when interest rates begin to rise. So these are the kind of things that I think we should be looking for. Not necessarily, you know, the whole of the EM market, the whole of emerging markets but these little specific um, areas uh, that we may not have noticed before and that we may suddenly notice when the tide flows out.
0: Dave, I like your point about uh, sort of the dress rehearsal we had, uh, if you will. Uh, You know, certainly by all indications, what we're hearing from analysts and experts is that um, India specifically, you know, the emerging market certainly looks very attractive. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with sort of the new government that came in. But... um, so sure, I mean maybe things could go off whack just a little bit when you know if interest rates do rise and you know if they haven't learned enough. But how how much of a danger do you actually think that is given that, you know, even yesterday we heard that companies like Softbank are going in and, and investing huge amounts in the country. Do you think they are actually prepared?
2: Are you talking about India specifically? India specifically. Well, India, in a sense, I think is, is slightly different from some economies because India has been doing so badly um, uh, in recent years. Its growth has come down from 8 or 9% to about 5%. You know, now you have a new government, um, Narendra Modi, who's promised to cut through bureaucracy. You've got uh, a new man um, at the central bank, um, uh, Rajan. Um, and in a sense, India may be an economy that can actually pick up a point or two of growth, where others are going in the opposite direction. And I think it's important to realise that this won't affect um, all countries equally. Um, for example, um, Mexico has not had a good time in Latin America in the last 10 years. Everybody else has been riding a commodity boom, but Mexico has not done well. Mexico's a manufacturing company, uh, country. You know, now that what we hope to see is more American demand, um, then the likes of Mexico might do Quite well. So we have to distinguish between different economies and different types um, uh, of economies um, and sort of how they're um, set really in in what is now going to be a a new, uh, rather different period.
0: Richard, would you be putting your money in bricks given the grand exit of QE?
1: Well, I think uh, the the BRICS really uh, had the QE hit earlier on, so I think that that was uh, discounted a lot. I think as as David's saying, the next trick is going to be interest rates, but I, I think if times have been tough enough maybe for them not to become too extended. Um, just going on, David, you've got a new book out which um, I'd just like to talk about the title of a second, Japan and the Art of Survival. Now, survival is probably the key word when you think about Japan over the last 20 years and its economy. Um, uh, what are you saying about that and what lessons is it for the rest of us?
2: Well, I think one of Japan's main lessons is, um, uh, you know, don't get into deflation in the first place. Um, I mean, Japan's problem was that it let an asset bubble um, get completely out of control in the 80s um, and then didn't deal with it quickly enough so then had this sort of long period of stagnation I mean I personally don't think that the last 20 years have been quite as horrendous as some people think if you look at GDP per capita in real terms actually Japan hasn't um, done that much worse than some of the economies that we think have been roaring ahead like the UK, Difference is rather minimal actually in GDP per capita terms um, of course its nominal growth has been uh, horrendous and, and there have been bad side effects of deflation um, now it's trying to get out of deflation um, you know, so far so good, but, um, but it's pretty long haul, I think.
0: So, uh, quickly before we wrap up, Dave, we've got the, uh, Hong Kong International Literary Festival coming up this week, and you're going to be talking about your book. Uh, give us some details on what you're going to be talking about specifically, we know Japan, but specifically, and where we can come listen to you.
2: um, well, uh, you'll have to look at the program because I can't remember. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not this weekend; it's the following weekend. And uh, I mean, it's a literary festival, so I will not be talking about interest rates and economics. I'll be talking much more about um, Japan as a society, Japanese history, culture, some of the people that I interviewed, you know, including authors Haruki Murakami and um, some very strong and interesting women. And um, this various. Uh, politicians Koizumi uh, Abe is interviewed so there, there are people in the uh, you know in the book that I will kind of introduce and talk about ordinary people and famous people
0: Yeah you've um, got the all the hot shots there <laughs> that you just mentioned Richard are you up for this next weekend
2: Oh yeah I love these uh,
1: literary festivals okay. I'm, I'm a fr- frustrated book writer myself
0: Well you know chat with Dave after the show and you won't be frustrated I think you know anymore All right you can count on us thank you so much uh, for joining us this morning that is Dave Pilling he is the chief Asia editor for the Financial Times based right here in Hong Kong. Time is 8.23 a.m., and bad debt at the mainland's biggest banks continue to climb in the third quarter, sparking a warning on mounting risk and potential corporate defaults from a top central bank official. The average non-performing loan ratio among the five biggest banks climbed to 1.14 percent from 1.08 percent in the second quarter. The Agricultural Bank of China, which reported earnings yesterday, led the five state banks in bad loans with a non-performing loan ratio of 1.2. Nine The increase, however, was just five basis points off the second half of the year. Richard, should we be concerned?
1: I think it's definitely not a move in the right direction. We've seen um, uh, debt increasing. We've got issues with shadow banking. The whole debt problems in China have yet to be resolved. And um, this, I think, is yet another indication that we're still going in the wrong direction.
0: Okay, a quick look at uh, the numbers before we switch segments. Uh, the Nikkei is open up one point three percent to fifteen thousand eight hundred fifty nine. Australia's ASX index also up half a percent to five thousand four hundred eighty one, and Seoul's Kospi up three tenth of a percent to one thousand nine hundred and fifty three. The ongoing slide in crude oil prices has taken many investors by surprise. The drop, which has seen crude prices down more than 29% since the summer, has also weighed negatively on China's big producers. Our contributor Chris Oliver has the story. Over to you, Chris.
4: Good morning, Renita. Crude oil prices fell again in U.S. trade Thursday, ending the session slightly lower at around 81 U.S. dollars per barrel. That's down from its high of around 100 barrels Per one hundred dollars per barrel in June, so why have crude oil prices fallen so far so fast? We're joined on the phone now by Simon Powell. He's head of Asian oil and gas research at CLSA. Good morning, Simon.
3: Good morning, Chris.
4: So uh, normally uh, weaker commodity prices are a signal of weaker demand, but I'm not sure that's the case. We still have growth in Asia. We know that the economies are expanding here. What, What do you see as the the reason for the price drop?
3: Um, I think the reason for the price drop is mainly to do, do with supply. I mean, um, in some ways, you know, the, the reasons for this price slide uh, were hiding in plain sight from us. Um, we've seen growth in U.S. production. We've seen a little bit of sputtering demand uh, or slowdown in demand from Europe. And, and China's always been slow, or Has been slow for a while. And Middle East violence that threatened to disrupt supplies never did. Um, And the dollar strengthened. And so all of those things combined to send crude prices lower.
4: Now, from glancing at some of your research, I see that the producers in the Middle East are actually expanding uh, uh, production at rates that were formerly thought to be impossible. Uh, That's obviously uh, a supply glut that's uh, pushing prices down. What's behind their their achievement in uh, raising production?
3: Well, I mean we, we think obviously so Iran is coming out of a sanctioned environment and therefore Iran can potentially grow another 300,000 barrels a day from say 2.7 million to 3 million barrels a day. Um, Iraq uh, relatively flat at about uh, 3 but the big the big growth uh, has been in uh, in Libya. Uh, remember the Libyans had had terrible trouble uh, in 2012-13. Uh, our fourteen numbers are quite low, but we show them coming back to a million barrels a day by two thousand and sixteen. I think, though, as far as supply is is concerned, the big standout has been U.S. production. Remember, years ago, uh, you know, we, we thought uh, U.S. production had peaked, but then with the with the advent of shale gas and with it associated natural gas liquids. Uh, we see U.S. crude or, or equivalents of crude supplies uh, peaking at almost 9 million barrels per day.
4: I, I think Richard wants to jump in here with a question, but let me just uh, forerun Richard a bit. Uh, we, we're moving into the cold weather of winter now. Do you see that pushing up prices? And I know that you're not hugely optimistic about Asian growth at this stage, but where do you see prices growing? growing?
3: Yeah, look, I think the sell-off in crude prices is overdone. Um, you can see that just by looking at the chart how quickly it went down, and I think what it is is, is uh, OPEC are a little annoyed at U.S. production levels, and are trying to grab market share. We did see OPEC producers offering discounts to Asian buyers to try and maintain market share, and we've seen OPEC say that they're not going to cut production up there at their November 29th. Uh, meeting, I suspect they may have to capitulate, though, because remember, OPEC-producing nations have huge social welfare budgets that they need to fund, um, the Saudis especially, but also uh, across the rest of the OPEC countries. And so they may have no choice but to cut production. And I think with oil at low prices like this, you will see some uh, you will see some supply response in North America, namely Canadian uh, oil sands crude production may start to falter at these lower prices, as will some of the stuff that's higher up the cost curve in, in, in the rest of the USA.
4: All right. Thank you, uh, Simon. Uh, that's Simon Powell, head of Asia Oil and Gas Research at CLSA.
0: Okay, uh, Richard, I was wondering um, why this particular item made in the news this morning. I was a little skeptical at first, but uh, according to Barney Frank, who is an ex-House representative, and Susie Orman, the personal finance guru of the U.S., uh, it is a big deal that Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, has said that he's proud to be gay. What do you think?
1: Well, it's, it's obviously hit the news and, and, and big time. I suspect it'll be a fairly short-lived news story, though, and, um, uh, and everybody will get on with things because uh, at the end of the day, I think most people are saying it's, it, it's not an unusual thing um, you know, for this sort of thing to happen. So I don't really think it's going to impact uh, the markets that much.
0: All right. Well, uh, we're almost at the end of the show. Uh, Do you have anything that you'd like to mention before we actually wrap up?
1: Well, I think, you know, the markets do look as if they're in a pretty good spot at the moment. These US economic figures are good, they're likely to continue. There's still a lot of concern about Europe and the possibilities of deflation and with falling oil prices, you know, that's not going to help it at all. But even so, underlying Europe, there are still some green shoots of growth. I think we just have to hold on and uh, trust the uh, authorities as we did with the US.
0: Okay, are you going to be celebrating Halloween?
1: Uh, no, not really. You're spooked. Yeah, no, I'm one of these, I'm one of these grumpy people we're hearing about on the Today program. Oh,
0: Richard. It's the grumpy Gene. I don't want to say I told you so, but. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me this morning. That is our co-host, Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. Um, the US yen rate is at 109. Um, the euro, one euro will buy you 1.26 US dollars and one pound sterling will buy you 12 point four hong kong dollars a quick look at the weather forecast for today we'll have cloudy periods at first will be mainly fine during the day with a maximum temperature of around 28 degrees with moderate easterly winds the temperature right now is 24 degrees celsius and the relative humidity is 85 percent and now it's time for the half hour news summary with samantha butler Russia has agreed to resume gas supplies to Ukraine as part of a deal negotiated through the European Union. Energy ministers from both countries took part in a signing ceremony in Brussels. The European Commission President José Manuel Barroso said he was pleased with the deal.
3: With the strong support of the European Commission, Ukraine and Russia have today found agreement on their outstanding energy debt issues and on an interim solution. That enables supplies to continue this winter. I'm glad that political responsibility, the logic of cooperation, and simple economic sense have prevailed.
0: Russia cut off supplies to Ukraine several months ago because of unpaid debts by Kiev. The EU gets about a third of its gas from Russia, much of it pumped through Ukraine. The governor of the U.S. state of Maine has vowed to use his full authority to protect the public after an American nurse who's been treating Ebola patients defied instructions to stay at home. Governor Paul Lepage told WGAN Radio that the state would allow the nurse Casey Hickox.